Welcome to the Church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, we want to say thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you again soon. Here is today's message. All right. So I want to I want to kind of jump in. I'll, I'll show you a picture of our of uh, of my pa- uh, kind of our leader, Scott McKnight. He's our professor, and his wife Chris. And they, um, they, they were kind of guiding us. Uh, Dr. McKnight um, is just an incredible, incredible Bible teacher. And so going to these sites and he would just, you know, we were at the gates of hell, you know, in, in Caesarea Philippi. And he goes, let's talk about the gates of hell in this conversation that Jesus had with Peter. I mean, it was just awesome, right? And then the president of the college was with us too. His name is Bill Shield, and he was amazing. Also, he's a scholar of, of the book of Luke and Acts. He was incredible. So here's a picture of my cohort. Uh, we had about 40 folks with us because a lot of the spouses came, like Michelle, she came. And it was just, it was just awesome. So um, I'll show you some more pictures as we go along. But what I wanna do is I wanna kind of shift our minds now for Palm Sunday. Some of you are new to church and you might be wondering, why, why do we call it Palm Sunday? What's that have to do with uh, this whole season? And we'll talk about that. Um, but what I wanna do is I want us to kind of like mentally shift and I'm gonna ask you to kind of go on a journey with me and I want you to put yourself in the story. I want you to be there mentally. Imagine being there. 2000 years ago, you've transported back in time. I want you to be one of the disciples. I want you to imagine being in the crowd. I want you to imagine feeling the, the emotion. And I'm gonna help you with that as we kind of start this um, this journey. So if you're in the first century and you're a Jew, you have known nothing but oppression, but brutality. You're not free. You're in the homeland. You're in the promised land, but you're not self-governing. There's an empire, an occupier. There's a force that has got their boot on your neck and it's the Roman empire. And you're reminded constantly that you are not free and that you're looking for Jesus or you're looking for a Yeshua, a a savior, a Messiah to come. And he hasn't come. And this has been the story of the Jewish people for, for centuries, to be honest. They really lost their freedom in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed um, the, the, the last bits of the, of the Jewish kind of people. And they were in exile in Babylon. And when they returned, they still weren't free. There's bits and pieces of their history where they had moments of, of kind of freedom, but it's been a couple centuries since that's been the case. And so you're a Jew, and that's what your experience is. And all of a sudden, there's this teacher, a rabbi, and he has followers, and he's in Galilee, and that's in the north part of Israel. And these followers are, are reporting incredible things, things that just don't happen. You're seeing demons be cast out with just a word. You're seeing heal, illness be healed. And you're seeing people that uh, are kind of starting to stir. Like, is this the one that we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth? And there's a lot of controversy over him because he kind of talks in ways that aren't really appropriate, if, you, if I'm being really honest with you. He says things like, Moses said this, but I say this. Almost putting himself in in kind of a superior place to Moses. Like, who does he think he is? Some people would say. But then he backs this up with these authoritative commands 
that just, you know, heal illness and cast out demons. And so this whole movement, this, this Jesus movement that's in the North part of the country is just gaining traction. But if you're kind of on the sideline and you're watching this, you know, you could even be a little cynical because there've been other movements. Remember, this is an oppressed people and there are, there are revolutions that have started and they have been devastatingly crushed by Rome. Maybe Jesus will get our hopes up and maybe it'll be crushed again. That could be some of the sentiment out there. Regardless of how you think of Jesus, if you can be in that place like with me on, on our journey, Jesus has now decided to move his operation from the north part of the, of the country and he's traveling down to the south. This is a big move for Jesus. He's visited the capital city of Jerusalem a few times, but this is a different time. This is a different attitude. Jesus is speaking in a different way now. This has been about three years of his ministry, of his teaching. And now he starts to say something like this. This is my hour. This is my purpose. This is why I was born. This is why I've come. I'm headed to Jerusalem. Now, if you're one of the inner circle, if you're one of the disciples, you're excited because you are convinced that Jesus is more than just a preacher or rabbi. He's more than just a prophet. In fact, you're convinced he's the Messiah. And you've got reason to believe this, even though Jesus hasn't really publicly said it too much. I mean, you're seeing Jesus do things that just seem to fit the profile of someone who could take Rome out. And so Jesus and his disciples, they've been traveling down and it's a long trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's a hot and dry trip through the Judean desert. And you've now hit Jericho, the last major town before Jerusalem. And it's in the desert and it's 17 miles away and it's 800 feet below sea level. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's one of the oldest and lowest cities in the world. And Jericho is there and you're gonna ascend to Jerusalem. And you're gonna travel out of this Judean desert basin up to Jerusalem and it sits about 3000 feet above sea level. So you're gonna make this 17 mile ascent to the top of what's called Mount of Olives. And let's start our story there. Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives and Jesus sent two of them Ahead, I wanna show you a picture of what the Mount of Olives looks like today. Uh, so if you crest the hill coming out of the desert, you now peer into Jerusalem. This is taken from the Mount of Olives and this is a Jewish cemetery here. And you can see the clear line of sight. This is the, the uh, Kidron Valley here. And this would be the little valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the temple complex. The Dome of the Rock is exactly where the temple stood. 2000 years ago. And so as Jesus crests the hill, he's looking into the city and he sees the temple right there. And the disciples are gathered. This is his big arrival moment. This is his big entry. Now, what was a Messiah? Jesus is really, really particular about this. What does it mean to be a Messiah? In the Jewish mind, the Messiah is equivalent to king the son of David, the one we've been waiting for, the ancestor of King David, who would be able to finally and forever free Israel. That's what a Messiah is. Jesus has been speaking about bringing the kingdom of God into the world. 
And people in the Jews, they associated the kingdom of God with the reign of the Messiah. So these are one and the same. And so Jesus is at the top of this hill that called Mount of Olives, and he's about to enter the city. Uh, when I was on my trip, everyone in my cohort had to teach at different spots. So I spoke, hit that next one, I spoke on the Mount of Olives. And my topic was about the Mount of Olives. It's kind of cool. So every one of us got to speak at different places. And so I was teaching about what happened at this very location as Jesus crests that hill and is going to head into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Let's get back to our story. This is Matthew's version or Matthew's account, chapter 21. Jesus is telling his two disciples, he's going to the village over there. And he says, as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Uh, just say the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Okay, so Jesus kind of has this, this uh, moment to prepare for his entry. He tells his disciples that they're gonna find this owner of this donkey and he's gonna allow him to borrow. And so it's, 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 it's a way of Jesus kind of demonstrating his prophetic ability. He's able to know the future. His disciples follow Jesus's uh, orders and they bring the, the donkey back. And this is gonna fulfill a, a major prophecy in the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, there was this promise, this pro prophetic uh, vision that one day a king would enter Jerusalem, but a king would be entering on a donkey's colt. Kings entered cities on war horses, on chariots, but this king would enter in a very humble and unassuming way to calm the fears, to calm Israel. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. All right, so... The disciples do as was commanded. Uh, they bring the, the, the cult to Jesus. And verse six, it says, um, they then throw their garments over the cult and he sat on it. So you guys, many of you have probably seen kind of a re, a, maybe a, a recreation of this moment. Jesus sitting on this, on this donkey's cult and he has a garment laid over it, and he's about to enter the city. But what happens next is really, really important. There's a crowd in Jerusalem because Jesus is visiting the capital at a key festival in the history, on the calendar. This is the Passover festival. There was three festivals where pilgrims would enter Jerusalem each year, but this is the Passover festival, which was the, the one that had the most visitors to the city. The city of Jerusalem would normally have about 50,000 people living there, but during this festival, it could be 120,000 people camping everywhere because they were all coming to celebrate the Passover meal and to celebrate God's deliverance of, of Israel from the Egyptians centuries earlier. And so the crowd is there. And so they spread their garments out on the road ahead of him. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. Uh, hit that next one for me. We have John's account of the same story. John says the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city and a large crowd of Passover visitors uh, took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. Now, before I tell you what they say, this is why we call this Palm Sunday because the visitors to Jerusalem took palm branches and 
came out in front of Jesus and began to lay the palm branches on the ground as the, as the donkey was coming through the city or waving the palm branches. Now, why did they pick palm branches? What's the point of that? What's the significance there? Well, as I said, Jesus is activating uh, some very, very important images and identifying himself with these prophetic images. So the first prophetic image that he's activating is him riding on the colt. So if you saw a man with followers coming into the capital on a colt, on a donkey's colt, and you're a Jew, you instantly think of this prophecy in Zechariah. And you, and you think, wow, what is he claiming? The very fact he's riding in on a donkey is, is activating that prophetic vision from Zechariah. And so you're saying, He's, a, he's, he's riding in on a donkey's colt. That's exactly what the prophet said someone would do. Is he claiming to be the king? That, that would be the question. The people who are there grab palm branches. Now, the significance of the palm branch was about 150 years earlier from Jesus, there was another Jewish revolutionary. His name was Jacob Maccabeus. And the Jews in that point in history were controlled by the Seleucid Empire. It was another empire. The Jews had continually just been controlled by foreign occupiers. But Jacob Maccabeus is able to get a force together and they repel the foreigners from Jerusalem. And during that revolution and, the, and what subsequently becomes the Maccabean um, dynasty, the Herodian or the um, Hasmonean dynasty, the symbol for, for Israel was the symbol of the palm branch. So waving a palm branch or putting palm branches on the ground was definitely a, a provocative symbol that the king of Israel in the vein of Maccabees was coming into the, into the city. And the palm branch representing the nation of Israel was a way to identify this is our king. This is Israel's king. Remember, if you, if you know the story, some of the uh, religious leaders tell Jesus to, to tell his followers to stop this. You better tell them to stop saying you're the king and you better stop, stop all this nonsense because if you don't, Rome will crush us. Does anyone remember what Jesus says? He says, I tell you the truth. If they shut their mouths, the very stones will cry out. See, Jesus knows full well that he's activating these images that people are recognizing him as their king. As I said earlier, Jesus has been very kind of subtle about his identity but now he's not subtle. Jesus, he knows this is his hour, this is his moment. So back to what the, the crowd says, notice what they're saying, they shout, praise God. It was Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of, of Yahweh. Hail to the King of Israel. If you ask me quickly, what is Palm Sunday about? It's about simply this, Jesus is king. Somebody asks you, hey, what's Palm Sunday about? It's about this, Jesus is king. It's about the return or the arrival of the king. It's about Jesus coming in as king. Friend, I'm gonna just tell you this, this morning, Jesus is king. Thank you. Some of you guys are awake out there. Yeah, Jesus is king. Guys, let me say this to you. And it's really, really, really good that he is king. You know, guys, we are deceived into thinking that we don't need a king. Humans kind of have this, this, this really strong rebellious twist to our hearts. You see it when your kids are, are young, right? I mean, and we, and we think that, that what we really need is just freedom. 
And we think freedom is the freedom to do whatever I want. You know, I want you, I want you parents to do a little experiment. Go home and say, hey kids, I'm gonna let you do whatever you want. Tell me, is that freedom? <laughs> those, kids, those kids will be running amok in no time and your house will never be the same, right? The point is, is doing whatever we want doesn't equal freedom, it equals slavery. Humans need an, a king. We need a, a good and wise king that comes into our life as our authority and, and gives us direction and gives us his power to live the life that we know we really want, to be the husband, the wife, to be the person, to be the, to be the parent that we really want to be. But we have this twist in our hearts, this rebellious streak that bristles against the king. But Jesus is the king. That's what Palm Sunday is about. So Jesus is drawn on these images uh, from Israel's history. He's riding in on a donkey's colt. Okay, so if you're one of the disciples, man, you're like, let's go. This is what we've been waiting for for three years. I mean, we've been back up in Galilee, but Galilee's kind of the farmland. We're finally at the capital. And you know what's next? Rome is next, boy. Let's, are you guys excited about that? Like, let's go, right? That's what they're thinking. And I guarantee you, Peter and John, they're all, who's first in the kingdom? I'm first, no, I'm first, right? You've read the story, you know that's their conversation because they believe Jesus is about to kick some butt, right? <laughs> at least that's what they're thinking. Verse, uh, let's back to Matthew. Look at Matthew verse 10 here. It says, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. I mean, this is, like I said, this is not just gonna kind of happen without notice. The whole city is in an uproar and they're, and they're asking, who is this, right? And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. That's who this is. And Jesus' entrance into the city, especially the way he's entering, is gonna cause problems both with Rome and the religious leaders, the, the ruling elites. They're not just gonna let a prophet from Galilee just come in unopposed. And, and if you piece uh, John's account with this together, you know that just a little before this, John, Jesus does something else very, very amazing. In, this, in the same time in Jesus's ministry, Jesus is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives and he's in a little town called Bethany. And he's with a, with a family. Mary and Martha and their brother who had died, Lazarus. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. So he raises Lazarus from the dead. Bethany's only about two miles from Jerusalem right before he enters on that donkey. And so everyone in Jerusalem has heard about this dead man that's come up to life. Because remember, the city is full of people, the, the crowds are there. And so John tells us that part of the reason why there was all this uproar is not only did Jesus enter the city on this donkey, he had just raised the dead. And that's powerful. People like, and, and if you were back there, you'd just be the same, right? If somebody raised someone from the dead in Boulder City, don't you think he'd like head over the hill to go see that? Like I would, right? And John tells us that's exactly what's going on. People are like, I wanna meet this dead guy, Lazarus, and I wanna meet Jesus who raised him from the dead. So all this is happening right at Passover. Jesus enters the city, but this is something Luke says happens next, which is really unexpected. He's been headed to Jerusalem for weeks and he finally sees the city. He's on the donkey, he's headed in. People are saying, hail King of Israel. But look what Luke says he does 
at this height of his, of his popularity. He approaches Jerusalem and he sees the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. Man, I haven't ever seen a political rally of some leader, some presidential candidate at the height of their popularity when everyone's shouting, you know, how great they are. I've never seen anyone in that position stop and weep over our country. Jesus is the king we all need. He isn't the arrogant, proud, megalomaniac wanting everyone's attention and, 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 and allegiance. He hasn't come for that. He's come to give his life for us. And Jesus weeps over the city. He shows us what leadership is. He shows, what, shows us what greatness is. Why does he weep? Because regardless of the crowd's cries and shouts that afternoon, he knows that crowd's chance will change. And in less than a week, the same crowd that yells, hail King of Israel is gonna yell something else. Crucify him, crucify him. The crowd is fickle. How can you go from hail king of Israel to crucify him in less than a week? How can I do the same thing? Worship on Sunday and fail on Wednesday because I'm no different. We're humans and humans are fickle and humans try to follow Jesus and then we fail. That's why we need Jesus's power in us. We need the Holy Spirit to come inside of us to empower us to do what we can't do alone. And the, and the change in the crowd from, from hail king of Israel to crucify him just is another example of the, of the failure of the human race. Why we need a savior in the first place. So look what Jesus says. He says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is predicting the terrible fall of Jerusalem because he knows they're gonna reject him. This is their moment and they're gonna reject him. What was really interesting, Michelle and I were in Jerusalem and we're at the bottom of the temple uh, retaining wall. They call it the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. You've seen that on TV. But just down from where the prayers are, where the Jewish folks pray to the Wailing Wall is, are these giant stones and they're in piles of rubble at the bottom of the Wailing Wall. They are the remnants of the temple complex, a vivid example of Jesus's prophecy come true, that the stones that were building the temple have been cast down. And there's about a hundred foot fall. And the pavement that, that's there on the bottom of the temple mount has literally been destroyed, the ancient street by the falling of these stones. And Jesus is crying for Israel. He's weeping for Israel. You know, I told you, I taught on the Mount of Olives. With my, with my cohort. And what I talked about is this moment where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And then I, I, I asked our, um, my friends there, I said, guys, I want us to weep over our cities. I want us to pray over our Jerusalems. 
Jesus saw this city and he was broken because he knew that they would suffer the consequences of rejecting God. And it broke his heart. And I said, friends, let's pray for our cities and the people in our cities who are rejecting God. And we know the consequence that that's gonna bring them. God, give us a heart for our city. Give us a heart for our Jerusalem and so that we get in groups and we prayed. We prayed for our Jerusalems and we prayed for that Jerusalem too. You know, church, we need to be a church that weeps for our city. We need to be a church that says, God, save our city from, from the consequences that surely will come for those who reject God. Well, I wanna fast forward the story. I gotta kind of move on. So this whole um, set of events has kind of triggered some things. Jesus enters Jerusalem and that is gonna trigger the religious leaders. Not only does Jesus enter Jerusalem that way, the first thing he does when he, after he comes into the city is he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple, claiming authority over it. Then he curses the fig tree. There's a fig tree out there that didn't have fruit on it. And when he cursed the fig tree, it was a very provocative action that this tree would not ever bear fruit again because it was fruitless when, when Jesus came looking for fruit. It was a symbol of Israel, God coming to Israel looking for fruit and finding none and cursing the tree. It's a symbol for what's about to happen to Israel. Then Jesus gives a series of parables where groups of people uh, rebel against their king or kill the, the, the king's son all parables kind of mirroring what Israel has done. Instead of receiving their king, they reject their king and judgment follows. So Jesus does these things. Well, it ends up, the last thing Jesus does, it just, it, 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 it's like a, a head-on collision with the, with the Jewish leaders, is he starts to say that all the religious leaders are blind guides, that they are teaching Israel false and they need to repent. Well, it doesn't take long, as you, can, as you know the story, for Jesus to be betrayed, to be arrested, and to be brought before the religious leaders, Caiaphas, uh, the religious high priest. And I wanna um, look at this scene as we end today between Jesus and Caiaphas. Look at this, look at this scene. Uh, I wanna show you, actually first, I wanna show you this video clip about Caiaphas because I wanted you guys to remember that these are not just people um, that you read about in a storybook. These are real people. So I wanna show you this video of Caiaphas and then we'll go back to the scene because I wanna show you that the, that the history there is something that there's archeological evidence that supports it. So Caiaphas, he's attested in uh, the gospels. He's also in the writings of Josephus. But then like this video says in 1990, they found an ossuary with his bones in it. His bones were still in the box. It's incredible. When Michelle and I were there, we were on the Mount of Olives and we walked past this grotto and they had it like, um, you know, kind of sealed off, but you could still see it. I took a picture. Check out this picture. There's a whole bunch of ossuaries from the first century in there. These are these uh, bone boxes that they um, used as a burial practice. And so these are from the first century and you can still see them. And most of them are not very, you know, decorated, but, but Caiaphas was, a, was someone of the upper class. So he had this very ornately decorated bone box. And I just point that out because I want all of us to remember that these events that we're reading about in the gospels, they happened. I actually went to Caiaphas's house. They, they found it and they've excavated it. When I was in Caiaphas's house, I'll show you a picture in a second. I was in the courtyard area where Peter was warming himself by a fire in the text. 
And Jesus was inside of that house being tried by Caiaphas. I'm at the physical location. It was crazy. The stair steps that go into his house are the very stairs where Jesus and Peter lock eyes right after the rooster crows. And if you, if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. I want to go back to that scene though. Jesus on trial, the king of Israel, the king of the universe. And he's on trial before Caiaphas and he's being silent. He's not responding to these, to these um, witnesses, these false witnesses. He's just being silent because Caiaphas has no jurisdiction over Jesus. And it starts to really infuriate Caiaphas. Look at the story. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking, looking for false witness or evidence against Jesus that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So here's a picture of Caiaphas's house, just incredible um, excavation. And the, this is the courtyard area and the house is back here. And so Jesus, all this is happening in this location. It's about 10 minutes walk from the temple uh, complex. And so they're having all this discussion with Jesus and, and no one, none of the charges, charges against Jesus have any real merit. And finally, the text says two men came forward that have their story straight or kinda. And look what they say. These two men come forward. This fellow said, they're saying about Jesus, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, that's not exactly what Jesus said. He said, that it, he said that one day the temple would be destroyed. And then another place he said, if you destroy the temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And he's talking about his body. But there was enough here in this charge because of what Jesus did in the temple by cleansing the temple, because of his prophecy, the temple would be destroyed. There's enough here for Caiaphas to finally jump up out of the chair and come at Jesus. Look what happens. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? And then Caiaphas is getting so frustrated because of Jesus' silence. Look what he says. He says this, hit that next one for me. <clears throat> oh, sorry, skip that. I, I meant to erase that. We're going to stay in, in Matthew. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah the son of God. Caiaphas is done playing games. He's gonna look right at Jesus and say, tell us, you've ridden in on a donkey, you've cleansed the temple, you've given all these parables about people rejecting God and being destroyed. Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus's silence up to this point is now broken. Look, look what Jesus says. The most powerful thing he's ever uttered is right here in Matthew 24, 26. He says this, you have said so, but I say to all of you. In other words, he says, you're right. I am the Messiah, but it's more than you even know. He says, from now on, you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. What he's saying is, Caiaphas, I'm not a Jewish revolutionary here to take Rome out. I'm actually the, the cloud rider of Daniel's prophecy. I sit 
at the right hand of the Father. Caiaphas, you think I'm in your court? You're in my court. And one day you'll know it. Oof. This doesn't go over well. Up to that point, Caiaphas really didn't have anything to take to the Romans, you know, as far as a charge. Now he has one. He rips his coat. Look what it says. He tore his clothing to show show his horror (laughs) and says, blasphemy, right? Do we need any more witnesses? They weren't any good anyway, right? We don't need any more witnesses because he has incriminated himself. Friends, listen, Jesus was so committed to going to the cross that he incriminated himself to get the charge to go to the cross. He could have just stayed silent and the charges would have been dismissed because there wasn't a case but Jesus was committed to dying on the cross for us. And he incriminated himself. You've all heard this blasphemy. Look what he asks. What is your verdict? What is your verdict? He deserves to die. What happens next is the beginning of the cruel mockery of Jesus. The text tells us they spit in his face They strike him with their fists. They slap him and they say, prophesy to us. See, here's the thing about God. As he comes to us as a humble king. And for some of us, this is what is really difficult about faith because we want a God who's gonna just crush our enemies. We want a God who, when we pray, he acts immediately. We want almost this genie superpower that just does whatever we want. That's the kind of God we want, but that's not the kind of God we have. We have a God who comes humbly into our life and invites us to bow our knee to him or not. We have a God who comes here in the form of Jesus and allows people, if they choose, to spit on him, to smack him, to reject him, to mock him. And that's because Jesus isn't in the the business of forcing you. He's in the business of surrendering to you and winning you by his love. And that is a vulnerable thing because you can reject that too. And many people did. But that's not how it's always gonna be. Because one day the same Jesus is gonna return. And he isn't gonna be the lamb that's slain on the cross. He's gonna be the lion that conquers all. And the early church knew that. And the early church was preaching that. They were warning people, listen, Jesus came. He gave his life for us. He died on the cross. He rose again. Now it's time to repent and turn to Jesus and make him your king. Because if you don't, when the king returns, it's gonna be a whole different story. I wanna end today by reading you what what Paul writes. And these, these are scary words, but I have to be a faithful teacher of God's word. I have to tell you the truth. And here's what he says. Second Thessalonians, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. 
And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. So we, are, so we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things that your faith prompts you to do. And here's my question. Is Jesus your King? What is your verdict? Does our life live a reflection that he's our King? Am I living a life that shows that Jesus is really my King? Like what Paul says in that text, am I doing everything that my faith prompts me to do? Like if I claim Jesus is King, do I live Jesus is King? Because friends, Jesus is King. That's the truth. And I'm so afraid that some of us can get caught up in saying, hail King Jesus, hail King Jesus. But if our lives don't match, hail King Jesus, then we'll one day say, crucify him, crucify him. Because it's not what we say, it's truly what we live that demonstrates what we know. Is Jesus really King or not? And sometimes we need to just be in a place on a Palm Sunday and say, God, I'm coming right back to you because I think there's been some places where Jesus hasn't been King and I'm gonna kill that. Please, by your Holy Spirit, kill that. God, I surrender. I bow once again to the feet of Jesus because I wanna declare, Jesus, you are my King. God, there's a wicked heart in here that sometimes gets twisted, that doesn't want an authority over me. And God, by your Spirit, will you kill that? Would you put that old man to death and raise me anew? Come on, because Jesus, your king. Guys, I was at the Jordan River and they said, hey, anybody want to get baptized in the Jordan River? Now I got baptized when I was 10 years old, but I was like, you know what? You can, you can, you can renew your wedding vows. Can I get amen? I'm going to renew my, my allegiance vows. So here's a picture of me getting baptized in the Jordan River. Come on, man. Yeah. Jesus. You know what I was praying right there? Jesus, you are my king. Man, Jesus, you are my king. And so they, they dumped me, <laughs> hit that next one. And I came out, Jesus is my king, man, come on. But you know what? It's almost like we need that every day because every day there's a fight. Who's king? Who's king? God, by your spirit, be my king. Would you stand with me, church? As we meditate, as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, as we go on this emotional journey following Jesus to the cross and then, to, and then into the garden tomb where he's raised from the dead. As I, want, as I want our church right now, if we could just, if we could just have a moment with Jesus. For some of us, we just need to say it again. Jesus, you are my King. And God, I thank you, you're such a merciful King. There's probably some things maybe you wanna to say to Jesus right now, right where you stand. Some things that maybe don't reflect that he's your King and you need just...